Amen. Thank you, Brother Torres. Thank you, Lizelle. Appreciate that. Take your Bibles this morning. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 3 through 8. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. I want to preach this morning. Now be careful what you wish for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another day, another Lord's Day, another opportunity to be together, to gather in your house with your word. And Lord, we want to hear from you. I pray that you would work in this service. We need you. We need you to work in hearts and lives. And Lord, in particular, those that have come that do not know you personally, perhaps they have religion, Perhaps they even pray to you, but they don't know you personally. Lord, I pray you'd work in their hearts. I pray that you'd draw them to yourself, that they would be born again today, that they would place their trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would guide in all that's said and done, that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Paul lists seven gifts that the Lord has distributed or parceled out to believers in order that they might minister in and be a blessing to their local church. So I want us to look at the last two of these gifts this morning. Romans 12 verse 8 says, He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. He's saying these, these gifts that you have been given, here is how you exercise them. Here is how you use them. Now before we uh, finish the last of these gifts, I want us to complete what we uh, got started last week before we ran out of time. Uh, we left off talking about Solomon in his day, the richest man in the world and quite possibly the richest man in all of history. The Bible tells us he made silver to be as, as common in Jerusalem as stones, uh, his drinking vessels, plates, everything out of gold. He, he just had tremendous wealth, vast holdings of land and possessions. So quite possibly the richest man, materially speaking, uh, that has ever lived. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10, he says, he that loveth silver, silver for them was their form of commerce. And that was uh, money, if you will. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. So this is the voice of experience speaking. This is a very wealthy man. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity or emptiness, a waste. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. What good is there to uh, the owners thereof saving the beholding of them with their eyes? You can just accumulate it. More and more stuff, what can you do with it? You can just look at it. Jay Gold, an American multimillionaire, said this, I suppose I'm the most miserable man upon earth. Lee Iacocca, past president of Ford and Chrysler, said, Here I am in the twilight years of my life, still wondering what it's all about. I can tell you this, fame and fortune 
is for the birds. Andrew Carnegie said this, millionaires seldom smile. William Vanderbilt said the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, a multimillionaire. Again, many of these from generations ago, and their worth today would be in the billions if you adjust for inflation. He said, I am the most miserable man on earth. Christina Onassis, one of the richest women in the world, lived an empty, lonely life, having to hire someone to play tennis with her, go to dinner with her. She, she died at age 37 after coming out of a battle with depression. Her premature death was alleged to have been caused by her longtime addiction to prescription drugs. And she said this before she died. She said, happiness is not based on money. She said, and the best proof of that is our family. William Post III won a $16.2 million lottery jackpot. He eventually bitterly said, I truly won the lottery of death, I think. Jack Ma, one of the two richest men in China, multi-multi-billionaire worth tens of billions of dollars, said his money is a burden. He founded Alibaba, China's leading e-commerce business platform in 1999. The company at one time was bigger than Amazon and eBay combined. He says that he was happier making $12 a month as a teacher. Happier making $12 a month. And that his life back then was fantastic. He said his life is much more complicated now. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to, sp- to sleep. So there is a sore evil which I've seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Jack Whitaker won a $315 million Powerball lottery jackpot. He said, I wish we had torn that ticket up. He said, I don't like the hard heart I've got. I don't like what I've become. He called his win a curse, not a blessing. J. Paul Getty, in his day, the world's richest man, when his grandson was, cap- was, was uh, kidnapped, he refused to pay the ransom. After the kidnappers cut off his grandson's right ear and mailed it to a Rome newspaper, he then begrudgingly loaned his son part of the ransom money at 4% interest. It's his own grandson that was kidnapped. Loan him the ransom money as long as you pay interest on it. Dr. Aaron Beck, professor of psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania, did a 10-year study of patients hospitalized with suicidal intentions. He published the results in the American Journal of Psychiatry. And they list 15 major risk factors that contribute to a suicidal frame of mind. 15 things that cause people to be more prone to commit suicide. One of them on the list just simply said financial resources. And they said risk increases with resources. The more money a person has the more depressed they are. Ironic, isn't it? remember reading years ago, a lady, she was a Christian lady. She and her husband were on a boat in a harbor, and I think it was maybe one of those little harbor cruises where you go out and you get dinner, you go out for the evening, you come back in and pay whatever. I get seasick, I've never done one of those. But, um, but they were doing this in, this in this harbor, and she said there was a beautiful house, just a beautiful mansion with an expansive lawn that overlooked the harbor. 
And she said as they were going past that in the evening time and the lights had come on, just a beautiful, beautiful view, beautiful house. She said, I felt this twinge of envy, this twinge of jealousy. Whoever owned that house, she thought, wow, what an absolutely beautiful house. I didn't even know the owners, but, but I envied them for having that house. She said a couple of days later, she was, she was reading in the newspaper about a wealthy person that had committed suicide. And as she read the article, she realized, as they identified, it was the person that lived in that house. And as she was reading the article, and and they were given the description of of what had happened, the details, and she realized it was at about the exact moment her boat was going by the house, and she's looking and saying, man, the person that has that house, at that moment he was taking his life. She said, oh God, forgive me. Forgive me for ever envying that person what they had. Howard Hughes, notorious multi-billionaire, wrote, I work around the clock. Holidays mean very little to me since I work just about all the time. I have absolutely nothing but my work. When things don't go well, it can be very empty indeed. Howard Hughes lived as a hermit and a recluse for decades, miserable, wretched, and lonely. No matter how much money and power he acquired, he was never satisfied. He had a close aide that he would call. They say he'd sit in a rocking chair for hours, rocking back and forth. And finally, he'd call that aide, a man named Bob. He'd say, Bob, Bob, I'm lonely. His money couldn't satisfy. Henry Ford said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Lee Atwater, presidential campaign manager, said, wealth... Power, prestige. I acquired more than most. And then he said this, but you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. Again, Ecclesiastes 5, there is a sore evil which I've seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Do you want to be happy? You might be going about it all wrong. Quit striving to get. Start striving to give. Start living to give. And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message. I think it'll help you set the the foundation for that conclusion, if you will. But if you want to have a thankful heart, you would think that the more you have, the more thankful you would be. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If you ever get a chance to go on a missions trip, I would strongly encourage it. You can go to a country like the Philippines and you can see kids, all they have is a a, a stick and a a rock and, and they're playing and they're happy doing that with basically something they found in the street and they can play for hours and be happy. And you can come to America and you can have a kid that's got $5,000 worth of electronic gadgets in his bedroom. And what's he say? I'm bored. Well, go get a stick and a a rock and go out in the alley. You would think the more we have, the happier we would be. The average millionaire isn't thankful or happy. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul wrote this, This I say, he was so sparingly, shall reap also sparingly. He was so giveth bountifully, shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. He goes on to write, Be enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. In the book, Run with the Horses, the author writes of seeing a family of birds teaching their young to fly. He said, three young swallows were perched on a dead branch that stretched out over a lake. He says, one adult swallow got alongside the chicks and started uh, shoving them out toward the end of the branch. 
just pushing them, pushing them, pushing them, and the end one fell off, and somewhere between the branch and the water four feet below, the wings started working, and the fledgling was off on his own. He said, then the second one, the same thing happened. He says, but the third one was not to be bullied. At the last possible moment, his grip on the branch loosened just enough so that he swung downward, then tightened again, bulldog tenacious. He said, the parent was without sentiment. He pecked at the desperately clinging talons until it was more painful for the poor chick to hang on and than to risk the insecurities of flying. He said the grip was released. The inexperienced wings began pumping. The mature swallow, he writes, knew what the chick did not, that it would fly, that there was no danger in making it do what it was perfectly designed to do. Birds have feet. They can walk. Birds have talons. They can grasp a branch securely. They can walk. They can cling. But flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best, gracefully and beautifully. Giving is, is what we do best. It is the air into which we were born. It is the action which was designed into us before birth. Some of us try desperately to hold on to ourselves, to, to live for ourselves. And we look so bedraggled and pathetic, hanging on to the dead branch of a, of a bank account for dear life, hoping that will bring us satisfaction. We're afraid to risk ourselves on the untried wings of giving. We don't think that we can give generously, maybe because we've never tried, but the sooner we start, the sooner the better. If we're going to have to give up on our lives eventually, and the longer we wait, the less time we have for the soaring and swooping life of grace. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to really start giving, living? Then start giving. That's why Jesus said it's more blessed. You're happier as a giver than a taker. God designed us to be givers. We were made to be that way. And that wraps up the, the gift of giving as Paul uh, gives that to us there. The next thing that Paul mentions is ruling. He tells us that the person who rules is to do it with diligence. To what is Paul referring here? Actually, this is applicable in, in a lot of areas. It is used in the New Testament in, in regards to leadership. Not so much in government, but in regards to the other two institutions that God established, the home and the church. Uh, obviously, uh, to rule well in government uh, is important. Second Samuel 23.3 says, The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. The second Chronicles 19.5, and he set judges in the land throughout all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, take heed what ye do. Be careful. Take heed what ye do, for ye judge not for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. So God is concerned with how governments are run and that magistrates and leaders would rule well. But in the New Testament, that is not the emphasis when ruling is mentioned. Rather, the emphasis is on the home and the church. One of the mandated requirements upon the pastor is that he be one that ruleth well his own house. 
having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Also for the deacons, 1 Timothy 3.12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Along those same lines, we read in the book of Titus, as Paul's writing to another of his preacher boys, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Now, people oftentimes get a misconception about what it means to rule. It doesn't mean that you're to be a dictatorial tyrant, a marine drill sergeant, No offense to any of you that were Marines out there. But indeed, in regards to the house, in regards to the family, God says this, Ephesians 6, 4, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3, 21, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And, And yet he says that dad is to be the ruler of the home. Now, God is a God of order. God is a God of great structure. In 1 Corinthians 14, 40, he says, Let all things be done decently and in order. We don't have time to fully develop this thought this morning, but look at the feeding of the 5,000. Luke chapter 9, verse 14. There were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Make them sit down by 50s in a company. Now that intrigues me. Normally you think, well, just put a bunch of people over there. We'll feed them and just pass. He says, make them sit down by 50s. God's a God of order. And the Lord says, make them sit down by 50s in a company. And they make arrangements to feed them. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed them and break and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were filled. And there was taken up of fragments that remained to them, 12 baskets. And in John's account of of this same miracle, John chapter 6 and verse 12, when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Those are tremendous truths. So the Lord has them organized by 50s. We're going to feed them in an organized manner. And then when everything's all over and there's more than enough food left over because there would then be evidence of the miracle even after uh, the whole miracle was over. The Lord doesn't say, well, just, just throw it away. I can always make more. It's no big deal. No, he says, gather it up. Then nothing be lost. So he's a God of, of thrift, if you will, and saving, and a God of order. And in his universe, he's, he's done the exact same thing. We see tremendous precision, tremendous order in the universe. So much so that astronomers can tell us down to the very minute when a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse will occur even 200 years from now. He's God of precise order. Genesis 8, says, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. You know, the Bible clears up a lot of nonsense. It says we're going to have summer and winter. We're not going to just go into one big long summer. The polar ice caps aren't going to melt. Al Gore told us that would already happen. And the oceans would rise, and we'd all drown. Al Gore that spent millions of dollars buying a house on the beach. He doesn't even believe what he tells you. Al Gore who wastes more electricity than this entire church combined. He doesn't believe it. He's getting wealthy doing that. 
But if you just go to the Bible, it says we're going to have summer. We'll have winter. We'll have day. We'll have night. It's not going to cease. You have God's word on it. You can't get a better guarantee than that. Now, I know we don't have a whole lot of winter in here, you know. And people say, I want to live where there's four seasons. I say, we have five seasons. We have fall, we have winter, we have spring, we have summer, and we have fire season. We have five seasons here. <laughs> we have more than you do. So Hebrews tells us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. In Psalm 1990, thou hast established the earth and it abideth. Why does it just stay there? The Bible says he hangeth the earth upon nothing. Why does it just stay there? Because God put it there and he told it to stay there. They continue this day according to thine ordinances. For all are thy servants. Why do the planets still uh, continue in their rotation? Because God designed it that way. Isaiah 40, verse 26, lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. And so the same God that put order and structure in the universe that he created also designed government and the home and the church to need those same things. Without that, you ultimately have chaos and tyranny. It was Benjamin Rush who said, where there is no law, there is no liberty. The psalmist said, I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. It's in seeking the precepts and the laws and the statutes of God that I learn what true liberty is, to walk in those precepts. Why? Because God's a whole lot smarter than I am as far as living life. He says, I will have liberty as I, as I walk according to those precepts. When a person gets saved, they are delivered from the bondage of corruption, Romans 8, 21 tells us, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There's tremendous liberty in being saved. Proverbs 4, verse 10, Hear, O my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of thy life shall be many. I have taught thee in the way of wisdom. I have led thee in right paths. When thou goest, thy steps shall not be straightened. And that word doesn't mean straight as in going straight. It's straightened as in restricted. So the word means spelled that way. Your steps will not be restricted. Son, if you'll just listen to the precepts and, and obey them, you'll have freedom to live life to its best. When thou runnest, thou shalt not stumble. Take fast hold of instruction. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. In order and structure, there's liberty. The book of Judges closes with these sad words, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You think, oh, that must be nice. No, that's, that's chaos. That's bedlam. And so our text tells us that when we rule, we are to do it with diligence. The word rule, ruleth in the Greek, means to preside over, to stand before, maybe literally or in rank, and uh, it, it means to be over. Now, all throughout life, you are going to be in position of being over or under authority. Sometimes you will be in authority, and sometimes you will be under authority. If you understand the obligations and the responsibilities of both positions and act accordingly, life will go a lot better for you. 
For instance, when we leave here today and drive home, we are under the authority of the laws of the land in regards to driving on public roads. So, act accordingly. You're to be in subjection and submission to that authority. And if you don't act accordingly, respond correctly when you get pulled over. I've been driving longer than you've been alive, Sonny. I pay your salary. No, 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 no. No, you better have the right attitude. Submission to authority. You're required by God. If you're a Christian this morning, God requires that of you. That you would have the right attitude, the right demeanor. It doesn't matter that you're a CEO with 50 employees under you. When you go to work tomorrow morning, then you're, you're the authority there. Those employees answer to you. They're to do what you say. You ride on public roads. You drive on public roads. There's authority placed over you. We, we all switch those times where sometimes we're in authority, sometimes we're under authority. And you're going to do that your whole life. That's the way life works. If you're saved this morning, you have a tremendous obligation, tremendous responsibility to respond in the right manner to any authority that is over you. In Titus chapter 2, verse 9, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. That's your responsibility as a Christian employee. Obey your boss. You say, my boss is a jerk. It doesn't matter. God says do it to the froward, to the ones that are obnoxious, if you will. So he says be obedient and to please them well in all things, not answering again. Not to their face and not when you're going down the hall to your office. I'm just stupid, you think you're not right. No, no, no. (laughs) You're to please them well in all things, not purloining. Not taking the office supplies home because they don't pay you enough anyway but showing all good fidelity. Why? That they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. He said, be an exemplary employee because the testimony of God is dependent on that. You adorn the doctrine of God. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service when he's around watching, but as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Yes, you, you serve them, he says, but ultimately you're serving God. And so when you go to work and you don't like your boss and your boss is unfair, remember that yes, you answer to him, but ultimately you're serving God in everything you do. So we have responsibilities when we are under authority in that position But in that position, how many people pine away to be in authority? Oh, they want to be in authority. How many times young people want to, oh, I can't wait till I can just run my own life. It's not as simple as it seems. It's not as easy as it seems. And and you may look back and long for the day when your biggest decision was, what color shoes do I wear today? Because as you get older, the decisions have greater ramifications and greater complications and all of that. And the authority that you have, uh, you may find when you get it, you're not quite as excited about having it. Because, and don't miss this, this is the essence of our text this morning. Yes, we have responsibilities when we're under authority, but we have more responsibilities when we're in authority. For instance, and this would be much easier for me to preach in somebody else's pulpit, but let me start with the office of pastor for sake of our illustration, then we'll apply it to every area in the church. 
1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Hebrews 13.7, remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, it's easy to focus in on the ruling or the authority part, but what else do we see in those verses that the ruler is to rule well? It's possible to rule poorly. The ruler in the church is to teach the Word of God. That's a great obligation, a tremendous responsibility, and and he's to have faith that's worth following. The ruler is to watch or care for the souls of those following him. He's to take care that he's leading in the right direction. Paul would write to the church at Corinth, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Philippians 4, he says, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. He's saying, follow my example, but that means the ruler, the leader has to have the right example. The responsibility of authority is greater upon those who have it than those who are under it. Paul would say to the leaders of the church at Ephesus that came to see him in Acts chapter 20, he said, take heed therefore unto yourselves. First of all, the first thing you have to do is take heed to yourself. Don't worry about everybody else. First of all, worry about yourself that you're doing right, that you're right, that you're in a position to be leading. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. It goes on to say, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul felt that very keenly. He, he was going, he was making his last trip, if you will. Eventually he's going to be tried. He's going to be condemned to die. He's going to be martyred. He told them, this is the last time I'm going to see you. He feels this great responsibility for this church that he had poured his life into. He says, I know that when I leave... There'll be grievous wolves that are entering in. There'll be those that'll come in and bring wrong doctrine and try to get you out of the church, try to mess up your Christian walk. And he would say in verse 30, and of your own selves, even out of that assembly there, of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Now, when we see the word perverse, we have a tendency to think sexually perverse. But perverse just means anything that's away from the truth, anything that's not correct, anything that's not right. And he said, even out of that group, he said, I know that after I leave, uh, the devil's going to energize some people and they're going to speak wrong doctrine or try to bring disciples after themselves rather than seek to focus people on following the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul felt that responsibility keenly. Paul had traveled around, but here now he comes to Ephesus for three years. He said, night and day I've been warning you because I know I'm going to leave. 
I don't want you to succumb to this wrong doctrine. I don't want you to follow after false teachers. And Paul had pled with them. Paul had wept with them night and day. He felt that responsibility. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about all the things that he had gone through as, as a missionary and going to all the churches. And he said, of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered a shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep in journeyings often in perils of waters in perils of robbers in perils by mine own countrymen in perils of the heathen in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Paul was in danger everywhere he went. He said, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And then he says this, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. I would think if you're getting, you're getting uh, stoned, you're getting uh, uh, whipped, you're getting imprisoned, you're getting beaten, if they out of the care of the churches, well, that's no big deal. No, but Paul felt that responsibility of the authority that he had to lead and to lead in the right way. He felt it intensely. He would write to his preacher boy, 1 Timothy 4, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Timothy, make sure that you pay attention, first of all, to yourself. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, every man that striveth for the mastery, to, to gain some victory, whatever area. He, he's speaking in an athletic uh, context here. He's going to use that as a metaphor, as an illustration. Every man that striveth for the mastery, they want to be the best there is, at whatever it might be, is temperate in all things. In other words, if he's going to be serious about, about winning this race, he wants to be the fastest runner. He's probably not going to be going to the all-you-can-eat buffets very often. He, he's temperate. He's going to keep control of his body. He's going to discipline himself. Why? Because he has a goal. He wants to be the fastest runner. He wants to be the best swimmer. He wants to be the best wrestler. He wants to be whatever you fill it in. He says if he's striving for the master and he's temperate, he, he keeps his body under control. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. The crown they get's going to burn up one day. It's going it's to decay. He said, but we an incorruptible. He said, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest if any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway, temperate, self-controlled, self-restrained. Paul said, I, I, I discipline my body. I, I discipline my life. I don't want to preach to others and then not practice what I preach. I don't want to preach one thing and do another. I want to control my appetites, my emotions. I want to control uh, my life so that I can continue to serve God. I can continue to be faithful. He would write again to his preacher boy. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless. As a steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. And so the qualifications for this man to be in that position of rulership and leadership, he's to be blameless. He's to be not self-willed. It's not his will he's seeking to fulfill, but God's will, not self-willed. He's not to be self-consumed and selfish. He's not to be soon angry. He's to be temperate. He's to be in control of his faculties and his emotions. Paul is saying that before he rules other people, he must first rule himself. Again, that ruling is not some kind of 
dictatorial sense. Peter would write, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Because you better be careful in that position of leadership. Peter's writing to encourage them. He says, don't be a dictator. Don't lord it over them. Be an example. 2 Timothy 2.24, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patience, in, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, if the leader's doing what he's supposed to do. Paul would write to the church at Thessalonica, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. As a nurse. The, the, the leader, if he's not careful, just wants to be a doctor, a surgeon, and operate without any anesthesia. Paul said, we were, we were, we were like a nurse. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it were, as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Do you remember when James and John were aspiring to positions of power and, and authority, uh, what they saw that would be power and influence and all of that? And Mark 10, 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Now that was a desire to have positions of power and prestige and influence. Say, hey, when you sit in your throne in glory, can one of us sit on your right hand and one of us sit on your left hand? Can we be right there? And Jesus would say to them the next verse, you know not what you ask. You don't understand even the ramifications of what you're asking. It says, but when the ten heard it, the other ten disciples, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. Now when he talks about Gentiles, he's talking about the unsaved. He's talking about Jew and Gentile, but the Gentiles here just refers to the unsaved. He said this is how they rule. This is how they uh, manage things, and they just exercise lordship and authority, and, and they're, they're driving people to, so that they might be greater, if you will, and he says in the next verse, but so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. You see, the Lord does things differently than we do. We just we talked earlier about giving, and we saw last week the whole idea of giving and, and getting, and, and the Bible is exactly opposite of the way we think. And here it is with ruling. Jesus is saying, look, I, I measure greatness not by how many people serve you, I measure greatness by how many people you serve. The exact opposite. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. And they said, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So let's make application and then we'll close. If you're a Sunday school teacher, then you're the ruler in that class. For that hour, you're, you're the ruler. Paul says, do it with diligence. Do it with diligence. 
Be diligent. Be diligent in your, in your preparation of your Sunday school lesson. Don't just wake up on Sunday morning and, oh, it's Noah, Noah in the ark today. I know that one. Yeah, we could do that one. No, put some life into it. Study and prepare and have some object lessons and get there early and make sure the class is set up. Do it with diligence. Do it with your whole heart. Do it with, with everything you've got. You've got, you've got maybe 45 minutes to, to take that, that young kid and, and some of the ones that ride the bus and come here. That's going to be their only spiritual interest all week. That's it. Out of 168 hours, they're going to get less than an hour of spiritual instruction. Don't go in there haphazardly. Don't go in there unprepared. Don't go in there not prayed up. Do it with diligence. What an opportunity. You might change some little boy, some little girl's life if you're prayed up and studied up and you teach and you rule with diligence. It's an important thing. He says, do it with diligence, with, with attention, with, with care, if you will. Colossians 3, 17, whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not unto men. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Do it with diligence. Do it with earnestness. With, with zeal, with eagerness, with, with carefulness. Paul would write to the Galatians, it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. In other words, it, it's no light thing that you're doing. Give it your best. Give it your all. You may say, well, they're just second graders. Wow. Third graders, first graders. You understand that you might be their hero? You stand up and you teach them. You might have influence and impact in their lives that nobody else will. Especially uh, church kids too. I'm not minimizing that, but some of the kids that come in on the bus, uh, some of them don't even know who their dad is. And their mom's passed out on the sofa from last night's party. You could be the one that makes a difference in their life. Do it with diligence. Do it with everything you have. Pour your soul, your life into that. You say, well, I only have 45 minutes. Make it the best 45 minutes those kids can have. Do it with diligence. You're in charge of an activity, overseeing a special program, organizing, running, anything. Responsible for getting a music group together, getting some kind of a group together for something, heading up a crew on work day. Be diligent. Be careful. Be, be involved. Don't run people over. Care for the people you're overseeing, no matter what position it is, no matter how temporary or permanent it may be. Care for those people. Put your heart into it. Keep in mind that the first area of responsibility in ruling is to rule yourself. That's of paramount importance. Then you'll be ready to minister to others. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Notice the last part of that verse, and we'll close. He came to minister, came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, 10 tells us he came to give his life a ransom for many, a ransom. The word ransom is a beautiful word. It's the price of your redemption. 
It means the redemption price. He gave his life for your redemption price, for my redemption price. Because the truth is we're lawbreakers. We've broken the law of God repeatedly, continuously, willingly, eagerly, and joyously oftentimes. We're lawbreakers. And we're repeat offenders over and over and over. And there's a price for sin. So God sent his son because he loved the world, the Bible tells us. And he sent his son to die on the cross of Calvary. Not for his own sins, he didn't have any, but your sins and my sins. He paid our sin debt to be the ransom, to be the ransom for us, if we're willing to accept it, if we're willing to repent of our sin and turn by faith and trust him as our personal Savior. There's no religion can give that to you. There's no church can give that to you. There's no priest, no pope, no imam, no guru, no preacher, no anybody that can give that to you. That comes through the Lord Jesus Christ place in your faith and your trust in him you make that choice you make that decision nobody can make it for you but in in all of this ruling and teaching and giving and all of that if you're not saved the most important thing if you get nothing else out of it get this that he came yes to minister to others but he came to give his life a ransom for you whoever you are this morning will you accept that will you accept that ransom we accept that payment on your behalf? Are you willing to turn from your sin and turn and by faith say, yes, I'll take that payment. I'll accept that ransom. I'll accept you as my Savior. I hope so. Again, you have to make that decision yourself. Nobody can make it on your behalf. If you walk away and say, no, nah, I don't think so, then, then understand you're rejecting your hope of everlasting life with God. He's willing to give it to you. He's willing to adopt you into his family. But you must make the choice. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Pray that you'd bless now in this invitation, that you would work in hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. With heads bowed.